listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw, your personal guitar scientist with 25 years of experience building and repairing guitars. Sitting beside me is my lovely wife and co-host, Melissa. Greetings. I will read the listener-submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. I will. A couple things to talk about here. Halloween is coming up, and traditionally we do guitar repair horror stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't, I, we're not going to do that this year. What? We're I want to mix it up. Well, we've been doing that for several years, and I feel like it's been diminishing returns for a few years now. You know, everybody okay. sent in their horror stories, and I mean, if you have one to send in, do it. We'll mix it in. Yeah. Okay. But here's what I want this Halloween. Okay. I want you, the listener, I want you to send in gig horror stories. Oh. I want gig horror stories. Your worst gig, your most disastrous gig, the whatever. I mean, we've all got them. If, you've, if you're a gigging musician, you have gig horror stories. I cannot wait. I have a bunch. Will you tell us some of yours? Well, on Halloween, I will. Awesome. We're going to do gig horror stories. And if you have repair horror stories, absolutely send those in, too. I mean, if you've been waiting for Halloween to send in your horror story, send it in. But that's what I want. I want gig horror stories. Go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, and send it in there. And uh, you've got a month and a half to get that in. I'm excited. Good. I think it'll be fun. I mean, yeah. we're just mixing it up. Look, it's a show about guitar repair, but we can talk about gigs, okay? Yeah. Especially on a holiday. If you're going to make me work on a holiday, then we might as well make it fun. Right? Yeah. For the host. Oh, yeah. And the hostess. I'm the host. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm sorry. <laughs> How dare you? Just, yeah, right. Uh, what's on your bench, baby? Uh, me? Uh, what's on my bench? Well, let me think. I'm working on I'm working on a, a Ibanez gem at the moment. It's on my bench. Is it that... needs to be rewired. Mm. Not the most exciting guitar for a lot of people, but kind of nostalgic for me in a sense. I've never owned one, but I worked at the uh, Ibanez distribution warehouse for a long time in the 90s, and I worked on a lot of Ibanez gems, and so it was kind of 
It's kind of interesting to see one again. Cool. Do you know what an Ibanez gem looks like? Nope. It has a hole cut out where it's called a monkey grip, where you can oh, I do. I know grab exactly. onto it. <laughs> it's got a hole cut out where you can grab onto it, folks. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Does that's... it have finger, like little yeah, finger right. cutouts? Finger ridges. Yep. yep. Yeah. I've seen those. Made popular by Steve Vai. Yeah, that's a gem. But uh, aside from that, I mean, that's what's on my bench literally right now. Out in the shop, if you went out there, that's what would be on my bench. Oh, okay. But uh, there's a bunch of things I'm working on right now. I'm refinishing the back of the neck on a Gibson ES-335. I'm building three custom guitars this month. They're in the paint booth. Winding a lot of pickups. I'm doing a lot of things. I'm cool. just plugging right along. Really nice. What's on your bench lately? Uh, I just finished up a big order for Emerald City. I I made them 10 straps. Emerald City Guitars in Seattle. That is correct. They no longer advertise. But. <laughs> no money changing hands at, at the mention <laughs> of their shop. That's they, in downtown Seattle. They Pioneer still, Square. They EmeraldCityGuitars.com. Hate you so much. <laughs> they still buy our stuff. I just finished up a batch of straps that will be heading their way this week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Some fancy, some simple, some blackguard straps, some... Yeah. I'll, I'll mix. We love those guys. We do a lot of business with them, and they're just good guys. Uh, here's another thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Another thing I wanted to mention. Okay. You know, there's a lot of podcasts out in the world. Oh, yeah. Well, one of them is, just happens to be some people who live right down the street. Yep. Uh, called The Mothball Prophecies. And it's a podcast about collecting. Collecting what? Co- well, antiques and whatever, collectibles. But it's also, you know, it's it's really about the stories behind why people collect things and and how they got them and right you know it's just an interesting podcast but they interviewed us separately separately so melissa's got an episode and then my episode just came out today so you could consider those kind of bonus episodes if you just can't get enough of us which i can't imagine Look, that it's, you would it's possible this uh the mothball prophecies is hosted by our friend Sam, who mm-hmm. listens to this show. So, hi, Sam. And she is awesome. She does a great job. And it's a really entertaining show. So, if you like stories and people and interviews and antiques or anyone or all of those things, mm-hmm. you should go listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's uh, at themothballprophecies.com and hosted by Sam and Jill. And they do a great job. It's a good podcast, and uh, my episode is the newest episode, and it made me laugh <clears throat> listening back to it because uh, I had thrown my back out just the previous day, and so they came over. They came over to the house and set up a little mobile studio to interview me, and we talk about all kinds of things. But uh, I could I could not hardly walk the day before. And they, they came the next morning, and I could walk around. I was in a lot of pain. I was in so much pain, and it just hurt to sit there. And so 
I listened back to the podcast and I didn't, I don't know if I didn't realize it at the time or whatever, but the first word out of my mouth is ouch. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, because I, and I meant to say, I meant to say, I meant to say, wow, (laughs) but my back hurt so bad that she, she was, they were being very, very nice and giving me this very glowing, uh, introduction, embarrassing introduction. And she called me the Stephen Hawking of guitars or something like that. And I meant to say, wow, but my mouth opened and (laughs) the word that came out was ouch because my, well, listen, because he's so smart about the era that he collects and the tinkering that he does. I don't, it's like, I would say, he's the Stephen Hawking of guitars, minus ouch. the... <laughs> so I said, ouch. So that's why I said, ouch, because I was in so much pain. And I meant to say, wow. But I, but I, but instead, I, I said, ouch. So that's a little... And, it, and the podcast just gets better from there. Anyhow, uh, we've got a call. <clears throat> Shall we take a phone call? Yeah, let's do it. <clears throat> um, I think I think there's only one. Let's look. Oh, the phone's ringing. We better answer it. Uh, I can't click things fast enough. It's probably Micah from Nebraska. Hey, Eric. Uh, this is Micah calling from Nebraska. Oh! Um, I just wired a... I worked on the wiring of a 50s Gretsch Duojet. I was kind of confused by the way the volume pots are wired. I don't, and the switch for that matter, the whole thing. The volume pot has the one outer ground, outer lug grounded, like just about every volume pot I've ever seen. But the, the way that it goes to the switch was very odd. And I'm trying to think how we would do it over the phone, over a podcast. I, I guess maybe what I'm looking for is a really nice ex- explanation of the three lugs on a pot, what is happening as you turn it. I I think I know, but I just kind of want to hear you talk about that because you're smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we call into this show. Without looking at a diagram, it's kind of hard, but what does a pot do? How are the three lugs interacting with you know, the the sweep of the pot. Hopefully that's some good conversation. Thank you. Bye. Mm-hmm. You betcha. Thanks for calling. Uh, do you know what pot is short for? Are you asking me? Yeah. Potentiometer. Whoa. How about that? I've only been doing this for six years, you know. Wow. She knows. Yeah, it's pots short for potentiometer. And Micah wants to know what the three lugs do on a pot. Well... Um, it's really simple. If you think about it, <clears throat> it's really simple. Inside a pot, mm-hmm. it's a resistor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you know what a resistor does? It resists. Yeah. So it lets electricity flow, but it slows down basically as it flows through. So, um, it's kind of like a, a traffic light for electricity. Okay. So there's a resistor in there. The resistor is hooked up to the two outer lugs. Okay. The middle lug is a wiper that goes across the resistor. So... That's all it is. 
the lower lug would be off, the upper lug would be all the way on, and the middle lug would be adjustable by the pot? Well, yeah, it depends on how you wire it. Oh, okay. So you can wire it. As as Micah found out, he looked in an old Gretsch, and it was wired slightly different. But, um, yeah, so as you're looking at the bottom of the pot, the lug on the far right-hand side is usually soldered to the housing of the pot, mm-hmm. which grounds it out. Okay. And that makes it the off position. So that when you turn the knob, mm-hmm. you know, counterclockwise, mm-hmm. you get no volume because that wiper goes all the way across the resistor over to the part where it's grounded. And so it basically is grounding out the signal, and so there's no volume. That makes sense. So if you didn't ground that lug... What you would get is a volume decrease, but it would never go off, Hmm. right? The other two lugs, so that one's ground, the other two lugs are kind of interchangeable. You can go in one and out the other and vice versa, Mm -hmm. just depending on how you want to do it and how things are going to play with, you know, if there's multiple volume pots, um, you want to wire it a certain way so that they don't decouple each other or whatever you're going to do. But if there's just one volume pot, you can actually use those two other lugs interchangeably. I just came up with a question. Can I ask it? Yeah. Are tone pots and volume pots the same pot? Can they be used interchangeably? They are absolutely exactly the same. It's just that with a tone pot, Mm -hmm. instead of shunting the signal off to ground, we um, shunt the signal off to a capacitor going to ground. So instead of bleeding off all the volume, it only bleeds off the high frequencies. Fascinating. Yeah, only the high frequencies can travel through the capacitor. So you still hear the bass frequencies, and the high frequencies have been shunted off to ground, and they do not go to the amplifier. They go to ground. I hope that helps, Micah. I don't know how, I don't know what else to say about it. I feel like you were very thorough. Oh, good. I I know how to wire a guitar now. I'll say. <laughs> letters. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Greetings from smoky Seattle. My thanks to you both for creating the fret files. I find it very educational, and your spousal banter is equally entertaining and amusing. Certainly a welcome relief from all the negative news these days. Question, how snug should an acoustic guitar saddle fit with an under-saddle, thin-line-style pickup? I've been helping a buddy with an under-saddle, active pickup in his Martin D1228 from 1975. The pickup has a short, and since it's over 40 years old, I suggested he install a new pickup. He bought the guitar new and self-installed the pickup so we know the age. During pickup removal, I noticed the saddle fell right out of the bridge, but after the thin line was removed from the saddle, oh, after the thin line was removed, the saddle fit very snug into the bridge slot. I've always thought that the saddle should be snug, almost to the point where it is difficult to remove. Yes. Is this not the case when a thin thin line style piezo is installed? Now that I think of it, I also have acoustics with thin lines installed, and the saddles are loose too. He also doesn't recall ever shaving down the saddle to compensate for the thickness of the pickup. Wouldn't this have been recommended? That could explain the high action. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to ask anything. You've got it figured out, my friend. 
As a replacement pickup, he ordered a K&K Sound Pure Mini 12-string model. Unfortunately, it's too large to fit under the saddle. Do you have any suggestions for other acoustic pickups to consider? He plays through a Bose L1 Model 2. Thanks for entertaining my long-winded question. That's from Gino. No problem, Gino. I didn't have to read it. I just have to listen to it, so it's actually very easy for me. Melissa, on the other hand, has a very difficult job. Yeah, I did all the heavy lifting there. But now I have to answer the question, which I guess is kind of difficult. No. Well, this is why, Gino, this is why I don't like those under-saddle thin-line pickups. They interfere with the height of your saddle. They interfere with tone, I think. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want that under your saddle, right? Look, it used to be state-of-the-art, okay? It used to be the best thing you could get. I mean, there was nothing else. It was, that was it, man. I mean, if you wanted a pickup, that's what you put in. We've made huge strides in guitar, in acoustic guitar pickups. And your friend did the right thing by ordering a K&K. If the 12-string version doesn't fit, I would recommend uh, getting the the six-string model because the only difference is that the size. A six-string K&K Pure Mini will have three little round elements that are going to be glued to the bridge plate, right? He said that, he said, as a replacement, he ordered a K&K Sound Pure Mini 12-string model. Unfortunately, it's too large to fit under the saddle. I don't think that's what he means, because those don't go under the saddle. Those go inside the guitar on the bridge plate. Hmm. Okay, so, um, and if if those are too big, you can still use a 6-string uh, model for a 12-string. It'll work. It'll absolutely work. I've done it. Um, but, the yeah, the 12-string the elements are just bigger, and sometimes they're just too big to fit in between the X braces. So I would put a 6-string model in there. But, yeah, to answer your other questions, the saddle should be snug in there, almost to the point where it's difficult to remove, absolutely. And uh, thin-line pickups... They still they still sell them, which which is astonishes me. Uh, 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 it's like a <clears throat> it's like if if you could still go down to the corner store and buy a typewriter, like people are still buying them. I don't understand why. And this is coming from me. I mean, the king of luddites. I mean, I <laughs> eschew all technology. I'm almost Amish. So, uh, coming from me, this is saying a lot. There's no reason to install a thin line uh, uh, under saddle pickup in in an acoustic guitar. Wow. We're beyond that now. This is my opinion. Okay. You may or may not like it. Thanks, Gino. Hey, Eric and Melissa. I just finished watching episode 69 of the Homeschooling YouTube channel by Tom... Bukovac? Yeah, I don't know. Bukovac. I've never heard of any of this. And he said a couple things I'd be interested to get your take on. Number one, he has a lot of vintage gear, and every new guitar he gets, he has refretted. He states that it used to be that vintage guitars were worth more if they had the original frets. At least this was a belief among some folks. But now those guitars have gotten so old, the expectation that they should still have the original frets has lessened, and refretting a vintage guitar doesn't impact its value anymore. Let's address these one at a time. Okay. 
Um, that's like kind of a half truth. <clears throat> he he's on the right track, but f- for the wrong reasons. So refretting a, a vintage guitar does affect the value. Um, but not a not a, a huge impact. But what it, what's affected the value of that guitar is the fact that the frets were worn out. Right. Okay. But if the frets are worn out to the point that it's not playable, then it helps to have it refretted. The problem... The, <laughs> the detriment to the value is the fact that it's been played so much that the frets wore out. Okay, so so that's what's hurt the value. And then if you refret it, then now it's refretted. Um, so it's not, you can't say it's a hundred percent mint, right? I mean, if that's the only thing that's been done to it, and typically when you do a refret like that, you have to replace the nut too. So now you're going to have a new nut and new frets. If that guitar was a hundred percent mint before that, well, that affects the value. Right. You can no longer say it's a hundred percent mint, but what affected the value is the fact that the frets wore out. Okay. And and refretting it just addresses that playability issue, um, and it, it actually helps the value a little bit because now it's going to be playable. But just to... You made it sound like the guy just... He buys vintage guitars, and no matter what's going on, he just has them refretted. And if that's the case, that's foolish. I don't know if that's the case, and I've never heard of uh, this whatever... His name is Tom, but, Tom Bukovac. <clears throat> sorry about your name, Tom. <laughs> uh, anyhow, that's my opinion on that. Go ahead with question two. Number two, he also says old Gibsons, regardless of model, have the frets in the wrong place. Oh so that God. if the 12th fret and the open string are in tune, <sighs> below the 12th fret notes get progressively flatter and above the 12th, progressively sharper. He further states that obviously the guitars are still very much playable, but that nevertheless they are slightly flat slash sharp. I imagine his career as a studio musician and being under that studio microscope makes this more of an issue for him than for most others. He also says that any expert repairman is aware of this, so I guess the challenge is on you. Are you? <laughs> Obviously, I'm summarizing, so disclaimer, you should probably watch the episode for yourself. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Uh, thanks for the episode. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, to say that all vintage Gibsons have the frets in the wrong place, it, it's it's taking a little bit of information and exploding it to the point that it's no longer recognizable as a as a kernel of truth okay what gibson did is they used a mathematical formula called the rule of 18 that's been used uh, for hundreds of years probably since the like 16 or 1700s i don't know since they've been doing fretted instruments uh which is just a mathematical formula devised to get the fret spacing okay mm-hmm. well it's um not mathematically perfect it's it's a, it's an approximation but it works and uh th- the thing with intonation is and fret placement is that there's no such thing as a mathematically perfect one 
because we're dealing with a human being depressing a string and making a pitch at different places on the neck, right? So depending on how much tension you use to push the string down with, that's going to affect the, the intonation a lot. Um, there's, there's all kinds of factors. There's not a, there's not a mathematical, there's not a, there's no such thing as perfect intonation. A lot of people have come up with all kinds of goofy things to try to rectify this, like a crazy, a crazy nut that looks like a zigzag or, uh, you know, fanned frets and all this goofball crap. But if you put, if you go back to 1950 and give Wes Montgomery a a Gibson electric guitar, he's going to play in tune. Have you, have you ever listened? Have you ever listened to like a fifties jazz record where they're playing Gibsons and said to yourself, the, the frets are in the wrong place on, in, on that guy's guitar. <laughs> so this guy that you're talking about, why doesn't he collect Paul Reed Smith's or something like that? <laughs> If he's so upset about vintage guitars and how the frets are in the wrong place and how they need to be replaced, you get what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not going to get... I'm sure he's a lovely guy, and I'd love <laughs> I'd love to sit down and have a beer with Tom Fukaback. But, but uh, if he says Gibsons, regardless of the model, have the frets in the wrong place, it's really... It's... It's... There's a just a tiny kernel of truth there that he's blowing way out of proportion. That's my opinion. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody. <laughs> hey, Eric and Melissa, I bought a 2018 Fender Player Series Telecaster neck off of Reverb. The seller said the truss rod nut would not turn because it had glue on it from the Fender factory. My condolences. He also said he had contacted Fender and they told him that that was something that happened occasionally and that it was not too difficult to fix. Question one, have you ever seen this? Question two, how do you fix this problem? Thanks for the best guitar podcast ever. That's from Tom from Missouri. Thanks, Tom. Uh, goodness gracious. The truss rod nut won't turn because it has glue on it? Uh, no, it's not something that I really see, uh, but if, if that's indeed what's going on, what I would do would be to heat up a, a soldering iron and stick it in there in the truss rod adjustment nut and heat it up and then turn it and break the glue. I don't know for sure if that's really truly what's going on with it or not. I don't know. You, you bought it knowing the truss rod wouldn't turn? That's my question to you. Um, yeah, Tom, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's great. This might be Tom Vukaback from <laughs> the, the Tone School and Tone School and YouTube channel. <laughs> Melissa's on laughing gas tonight. I don't know what's going on. I, I've had several beers. That's what I would do. Stick a real, a real <laughs> hot soldering iron. Just stick it right the, up there. Stick it in the stick, stick it in the truss rod adjustment nut and heat it up and and that should uh, help you break the glue bond because whatever glue they're using and I can't imagine it's anything I've ever heard of it's probably some space glue 
it, I doubt that it sticks to the nut very well. Mm-hmm. It's wood glue mm-hmm. f- for crying out loud, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's being used to glue wood. So a non-porous surface like metal shouldn't, it shouldn't be really stuck to the metal that well. You should be able to break the bond. That's my guess. Cool. Thanks, Tom. Uh, hi, Eric and Mel. Long time listener. First question. I recently acquired a 1950 Gibson LG1 in pretty good condition, and it might be a keeper for me. It has about three little places on the side in which the finish has completely worn off to the raw wood. It has a lot of dings and scratches that do not bother me, but I have a feeling I should address these raw spots. They are on the side of the guitar. Is there anything I can apply to these spots to protect the wood? I have very little repair experience, but this feels like a low-risk project. That's from Michael. I keep thinking about this question a few questions ago where he says Gibson frets are in the wrong place. It's just crazy. That's crazy. Do you know how crazy that is? <laughs> do, you know how, do you know how valuable a 50s Gibson Les Paul is? Oh, I know. Do you think the frets are in the wrong, or in the wrong place? I mean, I get it. Look, they have more accurate mathematical ways of doing fret placement now. But there are a lot of builders who pride themselves and advertise on their website, we use the vintage rule of 18 way to lay out frets. Some people actually prefer it. Hmm. Anyhow, did you ask a question? I was... Let's bring the attention right back to Michael. I'm sorry. We're, we're bringing the, the long-time listener, first-time question. Here's what we're going to do. I, Michael. I really, I, we're going to take a break, reorganize, and we're going we're gonna to reread that question. We'll be right back. Hey, guys. I'm Cody with Apex Coffee Roasters. I wanted to give a few pointers on how to brew the best possible coffee at home. First thing you're going to need to make great coffee at home is great coffee. So... Whether you have Apex or one of the other mini delicious roasters out there, having great coffee is definitely step number one. Step two is having a, a good consistent grind um, through that coffee where each particle is relatively the same size. It's gonna be really important to your overall extraction. Once the coffee is browned, uh, it starts to lose its aromatics and its quality fairly quickly. So grinding immediately before brewing is the most ideal situation. Tip number three is 99-ish percent of your coffee, what you're going to be consuming is made up of the water that you brewed with. So having high quality brew water is definitely essential to the overall taste of that coffee. If you have water filtration, that is going to be significantly better than just using straight tap water. If you follow the first few guidelines of using high quality coffee, making sure your grind is correct, using good brewing water, those are all going to ensure that just a basic coffee maker um, is actually going to give you a really good tasting cup. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, order coffee from apexcoffeeroasters.com, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. That's good coffee. If you order Apex Coffee online, make sure to use our promo code PINUP. That's P-I-N-U-P. That way they know that the Fret Files podcast sent you, and you get 10% off. Hey, guitar nerds. 
Visit MalcoLeather.com to check out a variety of made-to-order leather guitar straps, or you can email MalcoLeather at gmail.com for custom work. Every Melco guitar strap is designed and built by hand by me. Check out my Instagram at MalcoLeather to see examples of my past work. And as an added bonus, I offer free shipping in the U.S. for orders over $35. Visit MalcoLeather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O Leather.com. Do you have any idea what I do with my time? Let me tell you, it's consumed entirely by building custom guitars, repairing and restoring guitars, making custom guitar pickups. I make a replica black guard, uh, Bakelite pick guards. These are all available online. You can go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's more the repair side of things. To see what's going on there, I've got a price chart. I've got, you know, pictures, examples of work. I've got a custom pickup order form. I would love to help you with your guitar repair or restoration or uh, just, you know, whatever you got in mind. Shoot me an email. Whatever. Give me a call. If you want to see the guitars I make, go over to pinupcustomguitars.com. That's P-I-N-U-P, like pinup girl. I always feel like I have to spell it. I probably don't. You uh, understand, I'm sure. Anyway, check it out, and uh, I'll see you there. Hi, Eric and Mel. Long-time listener, first question. I recently acquired a 1950 Gibson LG1 in pretty good condition, and it might be a keeper for me. It has about three little places on the side in which the finish has completely worn off to the raw wood. It has a lot of dings and scratches that do not bother me, but I have a feeling I should address these raw spots. They are on the side of the guitar. Is there anything I can apply to these spots to to protect the wood? I have very little repair experience, but this feels like a low-risk project. That's from Michael. Thanks, Michael. We appreciate you writing into the podcast. We do. I bet you didn't know we were going to read your question twice, did you? This time we're going to answer it. Uh... So he sent me a few he sent me a few pictures and I got to say Michael um th- I would not do a thing to that damage there's a f- there's a few little sections where uh there's like a couple flakes of paint missing and then there's another section where it looks like maybe armware or maybe caseware where the the case rubbed and just rubbed through some of the finish, but it doesn't look very big. Maybe the size of a dime or a, I don't know, something. But <clears throat> no, I wouldn't do a thing because um, messing with the finish on a vintage instrument really hurts the value. So um, it would actually be detrimental to the value to, you know, quote, unquote, fix those, right? Mm-hmm. I would just leave them alone. Uh there's no reason you don't need to you don't need to worry about like sealing the wood or protecting the wood. I get a lot of that. People people will say, "Well, the wood is exposed here." Well, look inside the guitar. Right. Uh, all the wood's exposed in there. That's how acoustic guitars are. Yeah. The finish is there just to you know, I mean, yeah, it the finish uh helps stabilize humidity and keep it from cracking and all this, but it's also there to protect it from dings and scratches, whatever else. But if you're missing a little bit of finish here and there, it's not the end of the world. Plus, it's it's a 70-year-old instrument. And just embrace those little imperfections as part of the beauty of having a vintage guitar. I wouldn't touch it. Thanks, Michael. 
Hello, Eric and Melissa. I have a 90s reissue Dan Electro 59 double cut with two pickups. The three-way switch is starting to crackle and sometimes cuts out when changing positions. Originally, I just planned to replace the switch, but upon further consideration, I'd also like to replace the stacked concentric knobs, which I dislike. I hear you. I don't like those either. On this guitar, I predominantly use the middle position with both pickups in series. The problem is that in this position, I cannot turn the volume off quickly when I'm not playing, and my pickups tend to hum. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to do is to have the guitar permanently in series with both pickups on, get rid of the switch entirely, and replace the two stack knobs with three knobs, two tones, and one volume. I know nothing about how guitar circuits work. In your opinion, would this be possible? Also, if it is, what value pots and caps would you recommend for this conversion? Thanks for your advice. That's from Sumeth in Bangkok. Cool. It's a good question. I mean, I'm trying to think <clears throat> if it is possible to have... Okay, so you want it permanently wired in series with both pickups on, right? Get rid of the switch entirely. And you want to have two tones and one volume. I'm just not sure why you're going to have two tones. I mean, I guess you could do that. What I would probably, if if we were just two friends sitting here talking about your guitar, and we are, right? Right. Uh, I would recommend getting rid of the stacked concentric deals and just do a, a master volume and master tone and replace the switch with a better quality one um, to, to keep it more usable, you know, to keep it more, you, you don't want to hardwire the thing into, you don't want to hardwire yourself into a box, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe someday you're going to want to hear that neck pickup by itself. Maybe you're going to, there's going to be some certain part of a song where you're like, man, I wish I had a, I wish I had a little janglier sound for this, but guess what? You threw the switch away and hardwired it to series. So, I mean, that's the first thing I would say is this this plan is a little bit crazy because um, you're really putting yourself... The guitar is going to make one tone now. So you might want to rethink that. But if you're absolutely married to the idea, yes, it can be done. And no, I cannot tell you how to do it. It would be, you know, I would have to sit down <clears throat> with a with a pen and paper and draw pickups and pots and and wire it on paper and figure out a schematic. I, I can't just do that off the top of my head. Um, with something simple or something that I've wired a hundred times, I could just, you know tell you or sketch it out really quickly but this is just different enough that I would have to basically engineer a schematic and so uh, it would be you know yeah it's possible but I can't just tell you on the podcast how to do it <laughs> sorry <laughs> but thanks for writing in we appreciate the question I got this nifty email from Reverb.com about the improvements they are implementing using that extra 1.5% they are taking as seller's fees here they are. One, <clears throat> instead of scrolling through a long list of items when they are looking for a new item, buyers will see a one-click 
add to cart experience that automatically chooses one featured listing based on factors like listing price, seller quality, shipping speed, and promotion rate. So they want to make it like Sweetwater? Mm, so what I get from this is that What's all, the point? The other, all the other things being equal, the amount spent on bumps will decide whose listing is chosen. At least that's what I think they mean by promotion rate. Correct me if I'm wrong. Number two, you can now spend an unlimited amount on bumps. Please cut loose with your opinion on this. That's from Rick and Gas City. This question is... Rick, <clears throat> thanks for writing in. I tell you what. Reverb. I want... Reverb, I want to like you. I really do. Reverb. We've been friends for so long. Please. You might... You might want to rethink some of your recent changes. What are you doing? You know, Reverb is mm -hmm. mostly a used gear site. Right. Okay. Yep. What they're doing here is <clears throat> trying to make it like uh, an Amazon or something or a Sweetwater. Right. And then the way they're going to restructure their the way they're going to restructure their one click add to cart experience and then uh deciding on who's chosen by how much money you spend to promote it's just sick. Mm -hmm. The thing I loved about Reverb was that it really leveled the field in the used gear market, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody living in their basement in in Cadillac, Iowa, mm -hmm. who doesn't have a storefront, could put their used gear on a on a website that had just as much reach as if, you know anybody else that put their gear on there. So, like a a brick and mortar store in downtown New York City puts their gear on there, and then Mike Vukaback from Cadillac, Iowa, can also. <laughs> put his used Gibsons with the frets in the wrong place on reverb That's and it's, all Gibson. and it's, and it's, yeah. And it's a great equalizer, right? What they're doing is taking away the, uh, level playing field here. Yeah. To me, it seems like, right? Yeah. And when they raised their rates, what they said was, we're, we're going to use this, to expand our reach and all this other jazz. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem to me like that's what they're doing. I'm so, I'm mad at re I'm mad at everybody. The world's on fire. Everybody's walking around with a mask and reverb raises their rates and the frets are in the wrong place. <laughs> I tell you, I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy about it, Rick. And I, I don't think you are either, <clears throat> but where are you going to go? G-Base, uh, if you want to buy some tumbleweeds, that's a good place to go. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to go fishing and you, you, need a, you need a jar of crickets, you could go over there because that's what's going on over there, crickets and tumbleweeds at G-Base. So I don't know what else you're going to do. They kind of, they cornered the market and then they, and then they, uh, then they turned the table. It's kind of like the guy who pretends he sucks at pool. Oh, man, you guys really cleaned my clock. You care to make the next game interesting? And all of a sudden... Yeah, he's a pool shark. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they are. 
Yeah, all of a sudden it's a 30% insertion fee. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next. For the first time in years, there has been a shortage of guitars. The used market is taking off. Guitar stores are wiped out. How is this affecting what you do? Don't you think it's interesting that after all the artificial shortages, the interest, the industry has tried to create limited colors, runs, etc. Would love to hear your take. Keep on doing what you do. Thanks from Nick. Thanks, Nick. Uh, I gotta tell you, I don't know if, look, I'm not in the habit of buying new guitars, so maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't believe there is a shortage. In fact, uh, I'm still buying guitars that were made 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. I think if the world stopped making guitars now, it would probably take us a hundred years to just use up the, uh, the guitars we have. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you mean by a shortage. I suppose there's... I suppose Guitar Center maybe has a shortage of, like, you know, if they're importing a whole bunch of Korean and Taiwanese and Chinese stuff, maybe there's a shortage of that. I tell you what there's a shortage of in my world is parts. It it has become difficult to get some parts this year. <clears throat> um, and that's been a challenge. I don't know about a guitar shortage. I Something tells me that that might be maybe somebody's marketing strategy that got into your head but i don't know i really don't honestly i don't know i don't know if that's a thing or not um he asks how has this affected what you do well i've been busier than ever this year so i mean you know do do with that information what you will Mm -hmm. hi eric my name is papa from South Africa, and I need to ask a set of questions about acoustic guitar repairs. Man, we've got questions from all over the world. No, Bangkok and South Africa? Uh, firstly, I need to know what are the things in a guitar that need to be repaired or replaced immediately? And secondly, what do you recommend I get as a beginner plus guitar player? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting questions here. He wants to know, what things in a guitar need to be repaired or replaced immediately? Well, hopefully nothing. I mean, if you buy a decent guitar, um, certainly strings need to be changed. You know, often, I, I generally tell people if they're playing often to change their strings maybe once a month. But um, I've got guitars that the strings are probably two years old, you know, mm-hmm. on some of them. So um, that can vary. I mean, I the flat wounds I use, they'll last for years. So, uh, but yeah, strings, especially on acoustic guitars, they get tarnished and um, they, they'll need to be changed. Uh, but you shouldn't be needing to repair and change out parts or replace anything immediately. But it depends on the guitar. If you're buying a used guitar and it has a problem... You'll just need to have it looked at by someone who knows. I mean, that's all there is to it. Uh, He also says, what do you recommend I get as a beginner plus guitar player? Man, it's personal preference. It really is. So what I would recommend you do is try out some guitars and see what you like. Because it's 
it's just impossible for me to for me to make a recommendation. It really is. Yeah. There's it's like you're standing at the ice cream counter and there's a hundred flavors. I don't know what to recommend, man. You're just gonna have to get one of those little spoons and have a taste. <laughs> Thanks, Papa. Hi, Eric. How can one tell if the frets on a vintage guitar are original? Is it just experience and seeing a lot of examples? Is it possible for a fret job to be so good that it, it would fool most expert es, experts and pass for an original? Thanks for the show. That's from Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, how can you tell if the frets on a vintage guitar are original? Um, some guitars, it's easy, like fenders with maple necks they would fret the guitar and then paint it so you'll actually see a little bit of paint coming up onto the sides of the frets that's a dead giveaway um it can be hard to tell if you don't know and if you don't if you're not used to looking at them but yeah i mean a lot of it is experience i can tell but there's a lot of times there's <clears throat> just, there's little, you know, trace uh, remnants that somebody's been in there, you know, like l little tiny tool marks or sanding marks or something where you can see or, a or uh, even if they've used the exact right fret wire and it looks right, a lot of times you can just tell somebody has been in there. Somebody's removed the frets and then put new frets in um, on... A lot of Gibson guitars, the frets are in between the binding, and then you have nibs, little plastic nibs on the binding that kind of cap the fret ends. And uh, if it has intact nibs, that's on almost a guarantee that those frets are original on a Gibson. So it depends on the guitar, it depends on the model, and it depends on experience. You know, you have to know what you're looking for. You have to know what kind of frets it should have and the look that they should have and the the fret ends, you know, how they'll look. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it's experience and a lot of it's just knowing what to look for. So it's a case-by-case -case basis. Thanks for the question, Matthew. Can you oh, he, oh, I'm sorry. He, had, he said, is it possible for a fret job to be so good that it would fool most experts? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that look, there's there's fake guitars out there. There's modern guitars that have been made to look old that um are they're getting <laughs> really good at faking these things. I mean, I've seen a few, you know, but if you know what you're looking for, I mean, it's it's almost impossible. You know, you're not you're not going to fool everybody all the time. Right. So yeah. Is it possible that a fret job could be so good it could fool some experts? Sure. Cool. Can you spray nitro over poly? Have you ever tried it? Would it relic easily? Really looking forward to my first pinup guitar. Yeah. Thanks from Nick. Oh, yeah. Nick in Utah. I'm making a guitar for him right now. Cool. Uh, Nick, uh, can you spray nitro over poly? I'm the wrong guy to ask. I think so. I don't do it. I don't know why you would. 
I guess what he's saying is if you have a poly guitar and you want to spray nitro over that poly, but why, but why do you want to do that? I don't, I don't get it. If you did, you'd have to, I mean, this is dumb advice here. Don't do it. If you did, uh, you'd want to sand the poly. You can't just spray it on shiny poly. So you'd have to, you know, pretend that that poly is like a, like a sealer and sand it like a sanding sealer, sand it with like 220 or 320 grit and then spray nitro over it. But why, why are we doing this? Uh, would it relic easily? He says, I mean, well, that's not how I do it. So I, I don't really know. It's, it's a it's a tricky question because I'm not sure what your angle is here, and I'm not sure why we're doing this. It reminds me though of uh, in the early '60s, Fender started using a product called Fuller Plast. Fuller uh, was it was uh, a product sold by Fuller O'Brien, which was used to be a paint supplier like Sherwin Williams or something. So Fuller. And plast, meaning it's like plastic, plasticized, you know, whatever. It's like plastic. Yeah. And they'd spray it on, and it's, I think it's poly. Hmm. It's, it's, they used it as a, like a sanding sealer and pore filler. Um, and, uh, so, you know, a lot of vintage fenders have that fuller plast underneath it, and I don't, is it, is it truly poly? Is it truly lacquer? I don't know really what. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but plast, it's some kind of plastic, you know, Right. I think it's poly. So yeah, you can spray lacquer over poly, but I'm not sure why you would. So thanks, Nick. Eric, thanks for the great podcast. I enjoy it. Is the replica 50s Bakelite pickguard reproduction that you make and sell on your website the same pickguard I would get if I ordered one of your guitars with a Bakelite pickguard? Or would I need to order the pickguard separately in addition to the guitar to get the upgraded Bakelite mm. repro pickguard? Thanks. That's from Tom. Uh, yeah, thanks, Tom. I can see... Yeah, I've never thought about that. I can see why that would be confusing. Um, because I offer the pickguard there for sale with the guitars. But no, you don't need to order that separately. If you're ordering a guitar from me with a Bakelite pickguard, th- that is... You that's what you'll get. You'll get one of my reproduction Bakelite pick cards that cost a hundred dollars with the guitar as the pick guard, if that's what you're ordering. So no, you don't need to order it separately, which is confusing because if you order like if you just order the white vinyl pick guard, those are like ten dollars. <laughs> those are cheap. So right. I should probably the one with the Bakelite pick guard should probably cost more. But it doesn't. It's the same price. It's just that people used to, people bothered me saying, hey, you're pretty good at making these pit guards. Will you make one for me? Right. And so I just, I said yes so many times and finally just offered them for sale on my website. So you can just order a single pit guard. But yeah, if you're ordering a Blackguard style guitar with a Bakelite pit guard, that's what you're getting. You're getting one of my reproduction Bakelite pickguards. I hope that explains it. Thanks, everybody, for participating. Thanks for listening. And uh, get those gig 
horror stories in. I want to hear about... I want to hear about them. I want to hear all about them. It's going to be a fun show. Halloween, we're going to do gig horror stories. So go to ericdaw.com or just go there and submit your question or comment and we'll use it as part of the show. Uh, Click the contact link and uh, submit your question or comment there. The other way, you can uh, call 757-774-8482. I had a brain malfunction there. 757-774-8482. Call or text that number with a question or comment for the show and or your gig horror story. And I'm looking forward to those. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Good night.